Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Now, if you're just joining the podcast for the first time, normally we take the first 10 minutes to kind of just go back and forth. Uh, I'll tell you what's going on in my life and in my recovery. And Dr. Matt will bring some 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 medical information, some insight into the you're, medical you're world. Usually, you have, you have a more exciting life. That's not, around town that's not necessarily things. true, but I and and so you usually have more stories to, every, to bring. Every once in a while, I'll be storyless, and so I'll say, "Hey, Doctor Matt, yeah. what do you got?" And you go, "Well, I can talk about this. I can bring this." But today, you showed up loaded for bear. You actually brought information unsolicited paper. paper. Yeah. Now, why are we being uh, given this gift? Well, it is a gift, actually, what we're going to talk about. So I was in my office today, and once again, I had been asked uh, about, like, uh, how long it takes to get into a therapist, what are people doing who are in crisis. Uh, We are in a mental health crisis around the country, including the state of Utah. Right now, I think coming off the heels of the pandemic and all the other things. That Mass shootings. I'm going to tell you right now, yeah. I tell my kids, the world is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-N, however they spell it. Yeah, that one, yeah. And I usually learn how to spell it by listening to the Hollaback Girl from, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But no, I mean, uh, I think, I and I mentioned this uh, to Ashley the other day. I said, you know, I think crazy stuff is always happening if you think about the Vietnam era and World War II. It's not that things are, but this feels a little different. It does. And not in a really concrete way, not what you can always put your finger on. And so I think because of that, people are reaching out for um, maybe professional help and support more now than they they ever have before. I also think we're more educated as a society. Yeah. Where we were, mental health was really... uh, Stigmatized. Stigmatized and unknown. And people didn't have these open conversations and aren't learning how to deal with emotions and process information and know what anxiety looks like, what it feels like, how your body interacts with it. And so I think people are starting to figure out, hey, maybe we should do something about this. Yeah, no, exactly right. More education, more resources, less stigma. It's moving in the right direction. And, you know, I have, if we talk about gratitudes, we've talked about how important that is on our show before. Uh, One thing that I truly am grateful for, it may sound cheesy, is that I I work at the University of Utah Healthcare. And, And the reason I say grateful is, they have been making a real commitment uh, to promoting uh, mental health care in a lot of different varieties. With the Huntsman Mental ways. Health and Institute. I, I was going to say their partnership with Huntsman uh, proves that with $100 million over 10 years to try to make 
are already great mental health facilities, uh, you know, top tier in the whole country, and they're doing a great job of that. One of the things uh, that has been a priority for quite a while is crisis. What do people do when they're in a crisis? Where do you go? Do you have to go to the emergency room if you're in a mental health or emotional crisis? A lot of people don't want to do that. All they can think of is sitting and waiting for a long time while the person with the broken arm goes ahead of them, which probably would happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't know what else to do, so they stay home. And nobody ever really prepares for a crisis. Uh, <laughs> kind of the definition of a crisis, right? Yeah. But but there are some things we can do to help, like having numbers on standby, knowing resources that are available. Because if a crisis happens and your best resource is Google, that I mean, yeah. that's not good. Yeah, it, it's not good, and it's nice to know that there are local people with tremendous expertise that are available to help people. And I want to talk about just real quick a few of the options that are available for people today, and then I'll give this information to our lovely and talented uh, producer, Josh. Who's single. Who's single and just really good looking. Stop. Great head of hair. Yeah. Muscular. Yeah, it yeah, works out every day. Valedictorian is, or what is it? Magna cum laude. That's better, right? That's the top. That's yeah. number one. Yeah. So, so we'll give this to Josh. He'll post it on our social media so people can have these numbers. Of course, we've talked before about there is the Utah crisis line. There's a national suicide prevention you know, lifeline. And I, I, if you like the idea of calling the national line, go ahead. It's 800-273-8255. But here in Utah, we have uh, the Utah crisis line, which has a unique feature to it, which is the mobile crisis outreach team. Which is amazing because these guys will come out and help you take care of whatever is going on. And they're not just a bunch of schmoes. I mean, these are professional people, social workers, and they also have teamed with like Salt Lake County Police Department if that's necessary to keep people safe. And and the first thing you can do is you can call 800-273-8255, which is uh, which is talk that that's I guess that's also the same as the national line or I may have made a mistake there we'll double check but the local number is 801-587-3000 yeah you can speak 24-7 to a crisis worker on the phone and that's a great call to make if you're not sure what to do like if you feel like you're in a crisis or family or friend is in a crisis you can call them and you can talk about do we need the mobile team to come out and that's really great for parents a lot of times if they have a teen or a young adult living at home who is in crisis, it could be substance abuse related, uh, they could be high or drunk, they could be threatening suicide or harm to others, uh, or just really, really struggling with, with psychosis or something. Any sort of crisis you find yourself in, they can advise you what to do and if needed, send out a team to help you. Because doing nothing is never a good course of action. Uh, no, I, I would say that's the absolute wrong thing to do with these resources. That's why we're talking about it. Today. Yeah. I want people to stop either feeling like I can do nothing or handle it myself or go to the ER. And and the ER is a great place to go if you need to. Uh, but staying home and trying to handle it yourself, we're, we're too, we need to go past that. There are too many people ready, willing, available 24-7, and it's free. Um, you know, of course, there's the Safe Utah app and phone number. I think that's 833-372-3388. You can call that or you can download the app. You can have a private chat with somebody. That's what, and, you know, sometimes uh, the app is very beneficial because um, you can do it anonymously. You know what I mean? You can, right. you can, you, you can if you're worried text. about someone, yeah. you know, uh, this has been very helpful uh, for teenagers and college students that I've talked with who have a really close friend, and at that age, you care 
if your friends get mad at you, you know, when you're old like me, you don't care so much. Right. But when you're young, that that's the most important thing in the world. But you know, you don't want to do nothing when a friend's talking about suicide or other sorts of scary things, and and so you can make a you can make an anonymous tip. Or, or even just chat with someone to see if you should make a tip. Like sometimes we don't know. And so instead of you, there's somebody who will talk to you about it and they might say, no, that's okay. Or they might say, yeah, give me their number and we'll, we'll talk to them. Once again, doing something's better than doing Yes, that. absolutely. But the main thing I wanted to talk to you about is, so I think, I think the, the crisis people in mental health at the University of Utah Healthcare have been looking at this and they said, we can, but maybe there's a group of people we're still missing. Maybe you don't feel like you need to call the actual crisis line and get a mobile team out. And maybe, you know, chatting with somebody on an app isn't feel like enough. What about the people that are just kind of struggling, kind of lonely? Uh, isolated. Isolated. Um, there might be reasons why you can't go out. I know that um, that was certainly the case a couple years ago, a year ago with COVID. And it's becoming a little less so, but the cases are on the rise. Yeah. Uh, what if you're on a list to see a therapist and it's going to be a couple of months? You know, we had a guest last week, uh, you know, who has on a list to get into Valley Camp. And, right. Uh, and there was only so many slots. And so you had to keep calling to make sure you're on the list. And yeah. so, I mean, yeah. lack of beds is a real concern in the state for mental health and recovery. Yeah, mental health and recovery go hand in hand. And, you know, even though Utah per capita has a tremendously large number of providers and, and options, it's still not enough, frankly. And so they came up with what's called the Utah Warm Line. W-A-R-M. Yeah, warm. It's not hot. It's not It's not maybe like that crisis. I need somebody to come out and help me. But it's not house. everything is cool. But I'm struggling. What if I'm just really struggling? What if I've done all I can do and I'm on a wait list, like you said, and uh, tonight I'm really having a hard time? There's the Utah Warm Line, and this is intended for people that really need a good listening ear. Somebody who is like, I need someone to talk to right now. I don't think I'm necessarily going to hurt myself or someone else, but I'm really struggling. Maybe I, I'm trying not to use and I'm tempted to use. I just need, I, I have a mental health. I'm very depressed. Uh, my anxiety is stopping me from going to work, those kinds of things. Who could I talk to to get some direction and a good listening ear? And there's the Utah Warm Line. Now, it's not 24-7, so the crisis line is there for people in the middle of the night and on the weekends. But the Utah Warm Line is staffed by professional people from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., so almost all day, seven days a week. They don't take the weekends off and, and every day in the year, and it's free, of course. And the number there is uh, is uh, it's 833-SPEAK-UT. Okay. So 833-773-2588. Or the local number, that's the 800 if you're out of uh, the local area, um, cell phones shouldn't matter, but 801-587-1055. 801-587-1055 is a local number. You can speak to a professional person, uh, you know, and uh, you don't have to be. See, isn't that great? Yeah. It, that's what I love. That's why I say I'm grateful to be part of this. The university healthcare system is it's like, well, of course, if, if you're in crisis, we need to provide services. But what about there's so many more people that aren't in crisis or we could prevent from getting into crisis yes. by giving them somebody to talk to. And let them know what resources are available. Yeah, and, and be able to, um, you know, like, I think it came from a couple weeks ago, I was uh, doing a KSL thing mm -hmm. where they, that was their question. What do people do when they're waiting in, to get into a, a mental health care professional? And this is a good thing to do is if you've gotten yourself on a list and you're waiting to get in, 
uh, but you're still feeling real low, like you'd like to speak to somebody or you have questions about mental health, um, that's that's a great resource is the Utah Warm Line. And I also just got this. Starting in July, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number will be upgraded to a three-digit calling code, similar to 911. But for mental health support, the new calling code will be 988. That will be starting in July. So okay. anywhere in Utah, and, and then they're adopting Around it the in states as they get... Um, Infrastructure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So 988, starting in July, you can use that if you're in a mental health crisis. Yep, 988. Yeah, so kind of like 911, but 988. Yep. And speaking of mental health and doctors and resources, we've got a guest today that's going to be able to help us on all fronts. Her name is Amy Harris, and believe this or not, she's from Morgan, Dr. Matt. The best people are from Morgan. Right? But that should tell you right now that we've been doing this podcast for three years. Yeah. And the small little town of Morgan, Utah. Right. My hometown. uh, You know, with surrounding areas, maybe be 10,000 people. At this point, I think it probably is close out if you do the whole Morgan Valley. Yeah. We've had five guests. Yeah. Isn't that funny? And addiction is everywhere. It's not a big city thing. It's everywhere. Yeah. And I, in fact, I would say sometimes uh, small towns. Uh, I also went to graduate school in Kansas, which is full of small towns. And what we find is people sometimes feel kind of isolated in a small town without resources. So substance abuse can go up in those small areas. Her name is Amy Harris. We're excited for you to be on the show today and share your story. Uh, She's going to share her story of addiction, recovery, and what she's doing now. Next week, she's going to take the medical boards to become a registered nurse. Yeah, isn't that exciting? It's amazing, and it's a story you want to hear. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you? So we've got a Morganite on the show today. Her name is Amy right. Harris. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. You know, the fun thing is, is when we get people on the on the podcast from Morgan, you and Doc you know, whoever it is in the doctor, they, they like to talk shop. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like well, we don't, still don't have a street light. Uh, this is still there. It's changing. I know there's not enough room for anybody else to move to Morgan. So if you're thinking about it, you just stay away. Morgan's full. Turn around. <laughs> we want to say that to Utah. Utah's Utah in full. general. I mean, oh, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, what, what year did you graduate from Morgan high? I graduated in the year 2000. Oh my gosh. <laughs> when did you graduate? 90. That's a 20 year difference. Uh, 10. Is it? Well, yeah. I went to Ogden, so my math's not that good. Man. It's a nice try, though. Hey, let's focus on our guest today. Amy, how does your story begin? Okay. Um, 
So I am the oldest of three. Um, my parents um, were pretty young when they had me. I'm still in high school. Um, pretty happy childhood in the beginning, you know, uh, my earliest memories. I was pretty active. I like to be just right in the center of everything. Um, about five or six years old, I kind of started catching on to the fact that my family wasn't like everybody else's. Um, my dad had a really heavy, heavy drinking problem. Mm -hmm. um, it was rough. You know, it, it's interesting you bring this up because I was talking to uh, a family member and we were talking about our childhood. And we were talking about whether it was normal or not. And, I, and, 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 the, and the big question, was it, it normal? But I, but for me, I go, yeah, because it's all I knew, right? You know what I mean. And so I didn't know anything different, and I thought Everyone's the problem is normal is a little different. Yeah, but I thought all the things that I was dealing with in my house well, were not exactly the same as others. But it, you know, the, the major well, kids are points. egocentric, so they see the world from their own point of view, and that's okay. That's how it's supposed to be when you're young. And so, yeah, you make the assumption that whatever we do at our house is what happens at other people's houses, and then you grow up and you realize, uh, no. Not even close. So you said at about age six, you noticed that your normal wasn't so normal. I, I was I was in, you know, kindergarten, first grade, and I was like, there's something different here. You know, what is this? You know, so I... What I, was it? I... I, I <laughs> um, we had a lot of... We were partying all the time. There was, there was fights. And everybody I grew up with, they were, they were going to church. You know, we live here in, in Utah, so a lot of tight-knit families, um, there was a lot of moms that would come in and help our classroom, and my mom couldn't do that, you know. Um, my dad was gone a lot. Were they both working full-time? Uh, my dad was at that time. My mom was not. She was staying home with us. Um, my dad worked construction, and he would go all over, you know, out of town a lot. Um, I didn't realize at the time, but there was some, some jail time served, you know, there. Looking back, I was like, oh... Now I see that, you know, mm -hmm. um, so I started noticing that, you know, because I'm around a lot of other kids now, you know, in kindergarten and stuff. And I just, it's funny because I, I do remember is parting thinking that like I would go to the store. This is when you could like smoke in Kmart and stuff. And I would be like, okay, what people are smoking and what people are not, what people are buying beer and what people are not. Like I started noticing that, um, which is weird, right? At six years old to start thinking that, you know? Um, and I was like, okay, you know what? My dad's cool. Like, I thought he was like this cool, handsome guy. He had this strut. He drinks beer and he parties. And, and that's that's what I want to do, you know? And I started taking inventory of people around me. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, uh, we start to, like like you're saying, we kind of identify with our parents and what they do. There's a certain period of a window of time as a kid where you want to be like your parents and, and you think they're kind of the standard. So yeah, absolutely. And then a little girl to her dad, that's sort of a particular kind of admiration that happens. And I'm sure that you were, you're kind of thinking, yeah, my dad's, he's the man. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And so do you remember the first time you tried alcohol? Oh yeah. It was a, a Super Bowl party and you know, we're partying up All my dad's family's there. And, and I was like, I'm, I'm going to drink. I was probably like seven years old. The first time I tried alcohol, and I was like, cool. And you were saying earlier that parties at your house were pretty standard, pretty normal. Uh-huh. Yep. There's and a lot of parties. So just for the listeners and maybe for me, uh, what does that look like when you say partying at your house? What was going on? Um, so my dad, my mom, my mom was a normie. Like, she didn't drink a lot. It kind of made her sick. Um, but my dad's side of the family were really heavy drinkers. So we would have my dad's brothers all come over. 
um, their wives, you know, some friends, and it was we just drink and drink and drink. So and your drink. house was a happening place. That was a place where all the the aunts and uncles and mm -hmm. their friends came. So you're around. You're the oldest, mm -hmm. and that's kind of unique too because as the oldest kid, oldest children tend to identify with their parents uh, because they don't have older siblings to identify with. So you probably wanted. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably wanted to be around the action because you felt like a grown-up. Oh, heck yeah. I wanted to be right there in the middle of it. And that might have <laughs> that explained was my <laughs> why at seven you were like, I want to do what they're doing. I want to try a drink. So did you sneak the drink? Or did somebody offer you the drink? Or was it like, I'm just wondering what your mindset was like, I'm just going to take this beer. I'm going to go out back. I'm going to see what this is all about. It was a mixed drink, just sitting there on the table, and I was like, cool, I'm going to drink it, you know. Um, my mom definitely would have stopped me, but I think my dad would have been like, oh, this is cool, you know, let's give this kid some some booze, this kind of. And it's interesting you mentioned that your parents were still in high school when they, they had you, and I, you know, we'll get to how you feel about your parents and what your relationship with them is like, but just from that point of view, uh, the term arrested development often uh, comes up when a, when a person at any important developmental stage gets their development interrupted and so that adolescent time when all of a sudden you go from being a teenager to being a parent where all your friends are still just teenagers there's something that happens there where people often kind of get a little stuck in that adolescent mindset and so you know uh, a 30 year old who then has a child you know they've gone through all that time and they're well past it probably wouldn't think, oh, it's funny that my seven-year-old would drink a mixed drink. But unfortunately, and no no fault of your dad's necessarily, you know, I can see how somebody who kind of got their adolescence taken away from them by having to jump to this higher level of parental responsibility might still be sort of immature themselves. Is is that kind of oh, what absolutely. you felt? Yep, you absolutely. And and as we go through, I can I can relate a lot to that. So you drank for the first time at age seven. Do you remember it changing you in any way? Do you remember feeling the effects of the alcohol? Um, not at seven. Um, I was I I felt like I didn't get a buzz or anything. You know, it was like a hurry, take a drink. You know, and I was like, hey, to my sister, you know, let's drink this, and she's like, no, you're crazy. Um, not at seven, no. I just thought I was cool. Like, yeah, no, I, I get drink, it. Yeah, you know, like I mean, similar to me. I mean, I, I'm sure that I have a pretty similar story to that. I mean, my parents had the party house. Uh, when people came over, nobody walked in empty-handed. It was either a couple of bottles, uh, twelve packs, whatever it was, because they were there to party, and that's that was it. And it 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 was Friday night boxing. It was Saturday night this. You know what I mean? Any any event was an event to show up with alcohol. And yeah. we partaked in it, and, and and it was it was okay. And so this is a good example of, you know, some people grew up in homes where their parents entertained a lot, and some people didn't. My parents didn't really entertain, and so I I didn't have any you know like lots of adults coming over and spending. But you guys both did, and that's and just a unique difference of our upbringing. I can remember being eight years old and my dad inviting his friends over because they were building a bar. They were building a bar in our house, and it was a nice bar, and there was a pinball machine next to it, and that was the focal point of his group of friends for probably the next 10 years. Yeah. You know what I mean? To go to the Scots, they got a bar, and it was loaded, and I mean, that was, and all the kids, they'd bring their kids over, and we'd run around outside, and, yeah. and we'd, we'd play around, and I mean, that was our friend group. It was. So after seven, uh, when did you drink again? Oh, I pr probably not till junior high. I think I was probably 
11, 12. Still very young. <laughs> young. Yes, yes, young. And did life just kind of keep going on through elementary the way it had been mm -hmm. with lots of parties at the house? And um, so my parents, uh, let's see, around, I think I was eight or nine, they did get divorced. My mom couldn't take my dad anymore. He was very... My dad was a really cool guy, you know, when, when he was sober, but, um, drinking, he was not, he was just not, you know, um, very like physically, emotionally, um, abusive. Um, my mom was able to get out of that, you know, and I, I admire her for that. You know, my mom's a really strong woman. And, um, so at that time, my dad just kind of took off, you know, and, um, I remember the day he left, it was heartbreaking for me, you know? Um, my mom threw all this stuff into this big old duffel bag, you know, and I just, um, I wrote a note to my dad, you know, um, I love you so much. I'm going to miss you, you know, please, please come and see me. Um, and he didn't, you know, he was gone for a couple of years. Um, so we, my mom found a way, we found an apartment. Um, it'd been a couple of years this time. I'm probably like 12, 11, 12. And I come home from school one day and my dad's there. You know, I hadn't seen him for a couple of years and I just thought, oh, this is cool. Like my mom and dad are going to get back together. You know, I miss my dad. Um, and so we started having visitation with my dad. And, and so that was good. Um, or around that time, you know, 12, 13, my mom did get remarried. And that's when we moved to Morgan. And that was I was coming from Layton. Um, so it was a pretty busy area in Layton and we were going to Morgan that I'd never even heard of at that time, you know. Which is only 20 miles away. Right. But I was like, Morgan. To this day, lifelong Utahns have no idea where Morgan is. I'll <laughs> say I'm from Morgan and they'll, they'll, they'll have no idea. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> Which I kind of like. Um, so we moved to this small town and I'm like, this is going to suck. Like, my life sucks, you know. Um, but I got there and I was pretty popular um, because it's a small town and I'm a new girl. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so... Um, just started hanging out, you know, um, I was kind of more interested in the kids that were hanging out in the parking lot, you know, that just, I wanted to party. Um, and I think I, I just was upset at the whole situation. You know, I still was holding on to this, like need to have that relationship with my dad. Um, I had a, a stepdad, um, I was in a small town. Well, and I can't think of a harder age to move. <laughs> really, junior high is, is, for all the parents out there, if you can avoid moving your kids during junior high, you should. Because that's such a critical developmental period socially for kids and their identity. And that's just a tough time to move. So, I mean, you've got to stop and you've probably done this in your recovery process, all that was happening to you. You know, mm -hmm. your dad's back, your mom's remarried, you're living in a, in a city, you're moving to the country. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a lot for an adult to process, yeah. let alone a 12 year old. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you gravitated towards the parking lot crew. Yeah. Well, those kids are often some of the very most welcoming. Uh, welcoming. Yeah. yeah. Because your only fee for admittance is willingness to party. Yeah. That's I mean, that, that, Just looking for a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Don't snitch. Come hang out with us and you're in. Right. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so I started getting in trouble and uh, my mom's solution to that was, hey, you know, why don't you get a glimpse of what this kind of life is? Like, you're going to go live with your dad. Oh, oh, into so, the fire, huh? So scared straight tactic, kind yeah, of. Yeah, <laughs> that's what she was thinking. Um, so I went to Roy, um, live with my dad. Um, and it was okay. It was the same thing, you know, as before. 
Um, Your dad was still drinking. Mm -hmm, heavily. And his wife, heavily drinking. There were a lot of fights. Um, I There was a couple times I had to call the cops because of their fights physically. Um, and I just I just kept going down the same pattern. That's when, when I lived with my dad, that's the first time that I really like knew that alcohol was my solution. You know, I had kind of drank a little bit. Um, but when I was there, it kind of got rid of that uneasy feeling that I had. I was like, oh, this is great. This is where it's at, you know? So drinking to escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and it just... Self-medicate. Kind yeah. Of. yeah. And it became a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long were you with your dad? I was Roy? there for not long. It was about six months. Um, and then it was our summer vacation. So I went to spend time, you know, went back to my mom to spend summer with my mom. And um, he was like, okay, well, you know, you spend a couple of weeks up there and then, you know, we'll come get you for the school year starts and, and we'll get you back in school. And um, <laughs> I mean, looking back, this is probably the best thing that happened, but he just never, he never came to get me, you know? Um, and that was really hard for me. Like, I didn't really want to go back. But you wanted point, to be wanted. Right. By my dad, you know? I get it. So this is kind of a second abandonment. Kind of, I with guess. With your dad. Like you had written him that letter, which, by the way, was a little heartbreaking to hear. You write this letter, please come see me, and you don't see him for a couple of years. Yeah. And then here we are. I'm going to pick you up at the end of the summer. And, uh, that must be a hard thing for a girl to process. It, it kind of is. <laughs> You know, there's no kind about it. It is. I mean, I mean, I, I think it's a, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, uh -huh. but I will just say that the way to get past that kind of stuff is to go through it, you know, and the reality is our parents are our first intimate relationships and we learn about relationships by how it feels more than what we think about it. And especially when you're a kid, you know, and that's, that's a tough thing to process it was, <laughs> you know, um, I, uh, at that point I, I was sad for a minute and then I got angry, you know, at this point I'm just like, mm, I don't need that in my life, you know? Um, so I'm good for a minute, still doing my same thing, hanging out with the wrong crowd. I mean, they were great people. I shouldn't, I don't like saying the wrong crowd because they were, they were great friends. You no, know? I, and, and um, I, I know what you mean a hundred percent. I mean, I, I, I hang with the same people. As a matter of fact, I still hang out with same, the same people who party. I just know that I can't do it. Yeah. And they're doing the best they can with what they have and what they know. And it's not their fault. Yeah. Um, so I get it. Um, but isn't it interesting how anger is a more comfortable emotion than sadness. Oh, yeah. Right? It's most definitely more And more I would say you, you, what you just said is a brilliant example of what most people do, whether they're kids or adults, is we can't wait around in our sadness and our hurt feelings for very long before we kind of have to do something. And for a teenager, that, that's, I got, I think the most common thing is to get angry. So what'd you do with all that newfound anger? Oh, I just partied with it. Um, I got me a boyfriend that was quite a bit older than me. And I got pregnant when I was 16. So um, at that point, I was like, oh, crap. Like, I, I've got to change some stuff. You know, I'm going to be a mom. Um, and he was all on board with being a dad. We tried to make it work. Um, he didn't take well to being responsible you know, he's a young guy, um, great guy. Um, we're really good friends now. Um, 
but it just wasn't. It was there's. I mean, we were. I was sixteen. That's well, kind of back to my out. point is you guys are still kids, right? Exactly. I, mean, I think in our society, because sixteen year olds can drive and eighteen year olds can join the army, we we underestimate that that's still a, a developing child's mind. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the brain age. I mean, you're not fully developed until you're 24 or 25 uh, neurologically. So, but we, we start to think 16, 17, 18, 19, these are, these are, they're like little grownups. No, they're not. But you know why we did that? Because back then the life expectancy wasn't that long. So at 18, that's where you... It's been 200 years. So maybe we ought to update the policy. Oh, I'm not disagreeing. We're not going to. Yeah, but I'm not disagreeing with you. But yeah, 100%. But that's why that number was what it was back then. Parents and teachers and pediatricians and other people that work with kids, they know. They know that, that that's too much to put on you. And so how did you handle that at 16? I mean, I did what I could with what I knew. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, looking back, I did not, it wasn't the greatest situation, obviously. You know, I just, I went to work. I, I, I went to school. I knew I had to graduate high school. I did that. Um, I so was 16 years sophomore, you get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Did you have the baby while you were 16 or 17? I was 17 when I had her. And so you still had a couple of years of high school. Mm -hmm. uh, did I, you stay and go? I did. I finished high school. Um, and then um, I worked. Um, I was still at that time. I was still trying to work it with her dad. You know, we, we'd moved out and got a little apartment together just um, right there in Morgan. Um, I was working two jobs. He was doing his thing. He was partying and he was like not going to work and, you know, um, so I just, I, I got sick of it and I left, went back home to my mom, which was hard. You know, my mom, my mom, so bless her heart. Like <laughs> she's a wonderful woman. But, um, so I went back home to my mom. Um, at this time I decided I was going to go, you know, to school. I wanted to be in the medical field. I kind of always wanted to go that direction. Um, I don't know, growing up, like, you know, you go to the doctor's office and they just seemed so important and the nurses were so nice and they just took notice of you and took care of you. And uh, my grandmother was a nurse and I, so I knew I wanted to go that field, you know? Um, so I started school. Um, I did like medical assisting, nursing assisting. Um, this time I'm like, well, let's see, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So I was about 18 when, when me and, and my oldest dad split up, I decided I was going to go into the medical field. Um, I met at that time, um, I did meet my first husband, um, <laughs> just wonderful, wonderful guy. He was a little bit older than me. He had his crap together. You know, he had a place, he had a good job. He had two little boys that were the same age as my daughter. You know, I just, I fell quickly for him. Um, sounds like an instant family. Yeah. I mean, and that, and I was so happy then, you know, I was going to school. I finished with my associate's degree. Um, he wanted to be a pilot. Um, he was working really hard towards that goal. Um, I finished my associate's degree and he got a really cool job, um, working for USDA, um, for wildlife services as a pilot. Um, we're going to find out what that looks like in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery. So you just finished your associate's degree. Your husband, you said your first husband, mm -hmm. uh, just landed a dream job at USDA. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a pilot. Got, yeah. That's, the, the, that's like the 
the coolest thing. When I was a kid, being a pilot, oh, yeah. you mentioned the doctors. I thought, man, being a pilot, right? man, they're all Top handsome gun. and cool, <laughs> and they got the uniform. Wow, wow. Uh, he's got two little kids, same age as your daughter, mm-hmm. uh, and you said everything's going good. But I got to ask you, before we get further into this, were you still partying all the time, or did you have a little bit of sobriety going on? Um, no, I actually, I wasn't really partying. I mean, we would go out and I'd have some drinks, but it wasn't like getting wasted was my goal. You were getting tore up from the floor no. up? Nope. nope. Backed nope. up and smacked up? Nope. Beat up from the feet up? <laughs> nope. Those are partying terms. You're, yeah, you are a wordsmith. Yeah. <laughs> so you were just kind of just doing what normies do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we, at this point, he's got this job. I graduated school. Um, I got a good job and we decided we we're going to get married. And I am just over the moon and thrilled. You know, this is the love of my life. I have this perfect family. Um, are there more kids yet? Uh, no. No. Okay. Um, he, <laughs> no, he was not about that. He's like, I got two, you got one, we're good. Um, so we get married. Um, 2005, we got married. Um, and right after that, his job moved us. We went to Richfield, Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, Another small town. Yeah. I mean, uh, his job was predatory control, you know, for farmers. So they just um, take care of the coyotes, you know, is what his job was. He worked really close with the trappers and stuff down there. Um, it was really good. I, I had a really hard time adjusting to that move and, um, I was starting to have some anxiety. Um, and so, you know, I've heard this happen a lot. You know, um, I, I found myself getting a prescription of Xanax guys, like Xanax was my thing. Like I was like, Oh, now, what, cool. what had you, you had felt anxiety or why yeah, did you go just, in for that? I just started getting, I mean, I had all of these great things going on in my life. You know, we had a great marriage. I had a great, well, um, before we moved, I had a great job. You know, it was hard for me to move. It was hard for me to, and that's where I started having a lot of anxieties. Moving away, you know, from his boys, moving away from my, my job that I really liked. Um, and your into basic city. support system, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. Richfield's a great place, but it's pretty isolated. Mm-hmm. More than Morgan. It's farther away from, you know, the Salt Lake area. Yeah. So I started um, using the Xanax, and I was like, this is cool. Like, um, and I don't know at what point I was like. Abusing them? Well, I, I, I yeah, I don't know what point I started abusing them. I did. um at some point, I started also taking stimulants, uh, like for ADHD. I started taking uh, Adderall. Um, for some reason, in my 25-year-old mind, I thought Ventramine. I needed to lose weight. You know, I was tiny. I wish I, you know. Um, so I started taking Ventramine, and I had Adderall. And I think that I was like, okay, if I mix this Ventramine with this Xanax, I get this perfect little place. Oh, and now I'm gonna alcohol in there you know somewhere in that time period you're I just mixing started. uppers and downers yeah, and, yeah. you know biologically you're all over the place yeah and it was it's just really it was weird it happened just so fast i think i was just in the right place you know i was super happy in my life which is so weird you know that i started having all this anxiety and i started using substances you know um but that's the interesting thing about addiction most people think when you get into an addiction, it's because some sort of trauma, which a lot of it is, or some anxiety or something bad in the family. But sometimes people get into it when everything's going okay, or so they think. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be that way. I mean, I don't know if the, 
you need to tell your story the way you want to, but I will say that sometimes childhood trauma, that because we're children and we don't know how to deal with it, you can't as a child, then we get to be adults and we have our own children. Sometimes some of those feelings catch up with us and we're unprepared for it. We don't understand it. And oh, so sometimes those things get us when we are raising our kids and their developmental experiences sort of trigger, at least in an unconscious way, our memories of those problems. And emotionally, we can start to have things that seem like unexplained anxieties and depressions. And, and so, you know, it's interesting. I never, I never really thought of it that way, but that's really interesting. Um, to me, I looking back at it, I kind of feel like I had stability at that time, you know, and I kind of feel like it scared me. Like I was afraid to lose that, you know, that perfect family. And, and, and so I just, I don't know, maybe like a mix of those things. It well, was just, I mean, that would highlight yeah. the instability of your own childhood, right? Right. Right. Like here you are, you've, you've come through a, an adolescent trauma. I'm sure you don't regret having your daughter, but uh, you know, that's a tough time in life to, to make that leap. And now you've created this great home with good work and a good husband and, you know, and that stability sometimes can make a person's instability from childhood pop up into their mind. Like, Oh shoot. Yeah. What am I, you know, what if this goes away and, and you start to feel very insecure? Um, yeah, absolutely. Like that literally gave me chills just hearing it um, from you. I, yeah. Um, so this, so, did it become a problem with your husband? Um, like he started, noticing a little like my behaviors um were different and he did say he's like you know when you drink like you don't drink normally and you get pretty crappy and I was like whatever you know but in the back of the in my mind I was like yeah this might be an issue you know well and um, you admitted you were mixing mm -hmm. you know and so yeah <laughs> alcohol and, and a benzodiazepine like Xanax okay. that's a that's a dangerous combination yeah. let alone kind of a crazy making combination. People do a lot of goofy stuff when they're oh, yeah, on that there. combo. <laughs> um, so yeah, we kind of talked a little bit about it and I was like, okay, um, at this point, um, my husband, um, this was 2007. He, um, passed away in an accident. Mm -hmm. Um, he, it was a work accident. It was an airplane crash. Oh. Um, and so everything that I was scared of happening, you know, losing my family, um, happened. Um, and it just destroyed me. Like it crushed my soul. I can't even like, there's no, I still don't have words for how much it just crushed me. And I just, you know, for a few months after that, I kind of just went through the motions, you know, it's, it's an undescribable situation. You know, I was, I was 25 years old and I just, I lost my husband, you know, well, um, you were in shock. Yeah. And that can last for a long time. And you you don't have words for it, maybe because your brain was goes sort of on hiatus when mm -hmm. a person's in a shock with such a horrible life uh, tragedy like that. So um, me and my daughter, we move home to Morgan, to my parents for a minute. Um, I got me apartment because I was like, I can't um, be with my my parents. I've been on my own for too long, you know, so I got me an apartment there in Morgan. Um, I, I, I really spiraled because now I had a reason to just 
not care. Right. Um, can I ask, did you seek or did anyone suggest you get some professional support, counseling, anything like that? Um, yeah, so they did, they had a program, the USC had a program um, where they set me up with so many therapy sessions. Um, I was kind of turned off to it at first. I walked in the office, you know, it was really hard for me to get help in the first place. And once I did get help, I walked in and she was like pretty disorganized and, and I sat down and she's like, okay, no tell me what you're here, why you're here. And I was like, you don't know why I'm here. Ah, it just straight turned me off of it. That is you know, so like, frustrating to hear. It was like, it was so hard for me to get here and you don't even know why, Yeah. you know? Um, and so I went to like one more session and I was like, mm -mm, it's not, it's not me. I'm just going to drink and take a bunch of pills, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm certainly sorry for your loss. And you. also very sorry to hear that, uh, that the help that, should have been available, drop the ball. Yeah. So you said you started spiraling out of control. Mm -hmm. Yep. I just, I wanted to not have to deal with the feelings. You know, I felt I was, I, I, I knew that my relationship with my stepsons wasn't going to last, you know, um, were they living with their mother? They were, um, and, you know, like I said earlier, she did the best she could with her situation, you know, but, um, and we were actually friends at the time of his death, but eventually, you know, it just, we weren't getting along and she didn't want me in the picture and I didn't want to give up my things or, you know, um, there was a lot of money issues, you know, um, what was his, she wanted, or, you know, um, or what was mine she wanted and I didn't, it, it just was ugly. You know how it is. Um, yeah. We were both doing the best we could with what, with what we knew, yeah. you know, but a ton of pressure and a lot of grief and shock. I mean, those are the times often in people's lives when they're making huge financial decisions, but you're at your worst mental health state, you know, <laughs> and it's very hard. And of course, a lot of people do, um, you know, maybe not act in the most rational way in those times. And you're throwing in a bunch of alcohol and pills. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a yeah. perfect storm yeah. for bad decisions. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I went back to work at the doctor's office I was working before, you know, we left for Richfield. And um, it was easy to manipulate those those doctors that I was working with, you know, because they knew me before. Um, they They felt sorry for my situation, and I was able to manipulate and get more than what I should have been having, you know, I had, it was easy for me. Was it still the benzos, the, uh -huh. the Xanax? Yep. Benzos and alcohol and, um, still the Benjamin, um, you know, because I had to drink at night and then I had to wake up, you know, so I had to pop my, my Benjamin and my Adderall. Um, so yeah. Um, so at any point does your family or anybody step in and say, Hey, you, you might have a problem. Um, yeah, my mom mentioned it a little bit. My mom was really cautious of what she said to me because I didn't take criticism well, you know, um, my sister, I know my sister, and my mom talked a lot about it. They just didn't really know what to do about it, you know? And, um, I was telling you earlier, my mom didn't have that, that addiction. She was a normie, you know, mm -hmm. so she didn't understand. So to her, she was like, just quit, you know? Um, so I, I just went along like that, did the best I can, could I was working. I met a really great guy. Um, and in 2011, he asked me to marry him. So this was three years after my husband passed. Um, 
So we got engaged and you know, it's funny because that was such a happy time. I, I, I love this man truly like to, to the depths, but, um, I just felt like all this guilt for I'm going to get remarried and I, I can't move on from my first marriage. You know what I mean? I felt guilt. I felt all sorts of crazy feelings and I really went off the deep end. You know, you'd think I'm happy now, you know, but I, I don't know. I, it was just a lot for me. And so I was drinking Xanax, um, Pentramine. I went to work one day. Um, I think I had to be there at like noon. And so I had time to drink before I went. And then I popped some Xanax on my way and I blacked out at work. Oh. Yeah. I, I, um, but what kind of work were you doing? At the time? So I was a medical assistant. So I was yeah. in the medical field at a doctor's office. Yeah. And so for people, what, what kind of stuff did you, you had direct patient care then? Uh-huh. Yep. Taking vitals. Mm-hmm. Vitals and yeah. So not. Not good. No, 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 no. Dangerous. Blacked out at work. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, I cornered some doctors, um, was telling them all my problems. You know, they finally management came and put me in the office until I was coherent enough to deal with. Um, they didn't fire me guys. Crazy. No, they didn't fire me. Um, well, you know what? I'm not surprised because I think the conversation behind the scenes, who knows if I'm right, but I know from working in clinics where similar things have happened, the conversation behind the scenes is how can we help her? Right. You know, what can we do to keep her on? What can we do to help her? Uh, it's firing's not going to help or it's going to spin around more. I mean, there are licenses and all these sorts of things where, you know, we can't have somebody who's intoxicated working with patients, but I'm sure that the conversation was first, what can we do to help her? How can we support her? I mean, if you end up having to let somebody go, which I've seen happen, it's, it's many, you know, it's down the road. Right. And I'm so, you know, I'm getting a little bit teary eyed here because like I, I, exactly. I'm so grateful for everything that they did for me. And I, and I, I didn't quit there. Like I continued, you know, but they tried, you know, so they didn't fire me. Um, my boss recommended rehab. She gave me some information about ACT at Ogden Regional. And I was like, no, I think this is good enough. I, I think I've changed my ways now. This was a good enough wake up. This call. is, yeah. Yeah. Rock bottom. I right. can manage this myself. Wait, isn't that crazy in your addiction? You go, this is my rock bottom. And your rock bottom is like, ah, you're not even close. No. <laughs> You're not you even got close. Like, you got like 10 more years. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. That's not rock bottom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I was like, no. Um, went on a little while. I did okay. And then I started missing a lot of work, you know, and they called me in the office and they were like, okay, we know what's happening, which to me at the time I was like, what? How do you know? Like, I was really surprised. Like, I thought I was hiding it. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you go to rehab or you're done at this point. So I go to the ACT <laughs> and I just walked in there and I just remember like, it was almost comical to me at this point because I was like, I am not like these people. You know, these people need some serious help. I still have a good relationship. I have my family. I have my home. I have a job. You know what I mean? Like, oh, 100%. I was like, this, these people are ridiculous. Casey yeah. knows exactly what you <laughs> Yeah, I do. Been there, done that. So. Graduate from the program? Yep. I did 30 days. Um, I came out and I was sober for probably two weeks and then I was like, guess what? They cured me. So now I can drink like a normal person. Well, and, and that's, and that's the big, big thing. Everyone's like, oh no, cause now I've got the education. I know what I was doing wrong. I've got a new playbook. I understand the rules better. And this time it's going to be different, but we've all know it wasn't different, was it? No. And not only that, it escalated a lot quicker than you thought. Um, it did, but 
Well, so I got pregnant. Is what happened. Okay. So I got pregnant, right? I mean, so I started drinking a little bit and then I got pregnant. And so I was able to quit and it was fine. You know, um, I got pregnant. Um, but right, <laughs> right before that, um, I started drinking a little bit and then I get this call that my dad's really, really sick from my grandma, you know, and I was like, I don't care. I don't care. Don't talk to me about my dad. Like he doesn't know. Um, rebound anger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unresolved anger. Sorry. Sorry about it. You know, um, he had cirrhosis, um, and he ended up passing away. Um, in June of 2012, is that right? 49 years old from cirrhosis. Mm. Um, I just didn't have a lot of feelings around it when he died. You know, um, I spoke at his funeral, which was really hard. Um, I did it because I'm the oldest and I just thought that that was my duty. Um, I didn't really have anything to say. And so I had people write down things about my dad. So that I could just get up on this, on the podium and just share stories, funny stories. And as I'm reading these stories, I was like, these aren't funny. Like, this is what I'm, I'm at his funeral. I'm like, these things aren't funny. Like he was drunk all of the time. And, and I just stopped in the middle of my talk. And I was like, he was a great guy. You know, I'm sad that he's gone. And I just went and sat down. Like I didn't even finish my talk. You know, um, I still have some weird feelings about that. Um, sometimes I get angry that I finished with, he's a great guy. Because there's more to that. My dad was a great guy. He had some demons, some demons. And those demons made him behave in, in horrible ways. And they're not funny, you know. Um, so then right after the funeral, I, I find out that I'm pregnant again. So I wasn't drinking. Um I had my baby. Everything's great. I'm doing okay. Um, my first, or my my husband now, um, his first wife got really, really sick. Um, and she passed away from cancer um, when my baby was about six months old. And at this time, now I have four stepkids coming to live with us full time and a baby. And I just was like, this isn't, I can't, like, so I just didn't deal. You know, I started doing the same patterns again, right? Um, I was fighting a lot with my husband. And at this time I was like, okay, I got to go to rehab again because I'm going to lose my family. So I went, um, I did okay in there, but still the same thing. I didn't quite catch that. I have an addiction and that I cannot use ever again. You know, like it doesn't work for me. My body reacts differently to alcohol. In your rehab, mm -hmm. Do you think you ever really opened up? Um, what I mean by that is, let's just take let's take a, a pulse for a second. You're a teenager and you get pregnant. Um, you have a father with a band, you know, that abandoned you at least twice, and then he passed away. You have a tragic loss of your first husband. Now you have this overwhelming, you know, responsibility of all these stepkids moving in all at once. Uh, on top of the fact that you're struggling with an addiction. Um, I guess my question is, I'm seeing this pattern of holding it in, holding it back, mm -hmm. doing the behaviors, but not really maybe taking the time to reach deep and understand why the addiction has got such a strong hold on you. Yeah, we could look at genetic predisposition. I'm sure that that was there. You, 
you know, maybe a little bit more of your dad's genes in that way than your mom's. But um, I'm looking at this and thinking, this is a person that's about to burst <laughs> with all this emotional, psychological pressure of all these uh, really tough life events. Having one of those events is a big deal. You've had several. Did your rehab get into any of that or was it more just let's learn to be superficial? Very, that was the exact word I was going to use. Very superficial. Very, very superficial. Um, You know, I told my story, but there was not any depth to it. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, you downplay it, you gloss over it. Mm -hmm. You don't really get into it. Right. I was angry. I did the whole anger thing. Um, Did my step work. I, it was a a 12 step Um, just to get out, you know. I got out and I did okay for a minute. And then I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to accept, this is how I twisted thing. I'm going to, I'm going to accept that I am an alcoholic addict and I'm just going to like embrace that. Lean into it. Yeah. I was like, this is who I am. I'm going to just, that's how it's going to be. I did two rehabs. It didn't work. It's, it's fine. So how did I that just, go for you? I mean, I never ended up, I never ended up with any legal problems. Um, A lot of things I did, I I should have, you know, Um, I didn't lose anything. The family life was very tumultuous, you know, the word, I can't say right now, (laughs) Uh, wasn't good. Um, I was really having a hard time with my husband. Um, I was really fighting, really, really fighting with the kids. Um, Understandably, you know, they lost their mom and here I am, I'm just messed up you know I can't even um, when you said that it reminded me of my daughter's letter and she goes you know how much fun it is fighting with a drunk and when that drunk is your dad you know and that just gave me chills because I mean I understand what you're doing and you're doing the best you can and you're fighting with these kids and oh I mean I can feel for you it's heartbreaking I mean I I really do And, and you're leaning into it and you're trying to accept it and you're trying to Oh, it's just so much for you to process. It was, it was, I, I definitely did not handle it in a mature way. That's for sure. Um, I fought mostly with his youngest from his first marriage. Um, we just, I mean, she was getting into some trouble and I mean, at, at first we were really great, really close friends, but at this point we were just butting heads. Like I just wanted to control her and she hated my guts and we were fighting. Um, we got into a really good fight at home one time and, and that's where I was like, okay, yeah, I got to do something. Maybe I'll go to school. I wanted to be a nurse. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go to school. I got to change something. But at this point it's not my drinking habits, you know, cause that's just who I am. It's so I, um, quit my job and told my husband I'm going to start school. And it was from the, it's funny because it, that all stemmed from this really bad fight I had with my stepdaughter. You know, I was like, I'm going to change, you know? So I get enrolled in school and guys, nursing school is super hard. And it's when you are drunk and high, it's, it's, it's not a good thing. You know, I will actually tell you now that I know having worked with nurses, what nursing school is. It's competitive. I don't, I don't know how anybody gets. Oh um, yeah. And then, then, and then you add drinking and being high on that challenging. I mean, I, yeah, I can imagine. And you know, I was still 
This is when I'm, I'm drinking. I do better work when I'm drunk or high. That's a lie we tell ourselves. I, know. I'm I was a better golfer drinking, yeah. but that's yeah, no. not true. Um, and and I was I started I started stealing medications from my kids. Um, my daughter got some pres prescription stimulants, um, some prescription Xanax. You know, she was going through a lot because she lost her mom. You know, um, I was just stealing her medications. Um, I was hiding booze everywhere in the house. You know, like typical stuff. Um, you you know that's not typical. <laughs> not normal, no. Yeah, 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 not, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I too kept tequila in the garage <laughs> where you're not supposed to keep it, but yeah, it's not typical. Right. My, right. my kids called it my closet vodka. They all you know, yeah, they all yeah. oh yeah, yeah. Um so <laughs> doing that, I, I started stealing from my kids. Um and I just one day you know, I didn't have a horrible rock bottom. I just, I had taken some pills from my daughter and I was sitting on the floor just drinking my vodka. And I just, I've heard other people say this and it, it just gives me chills still to this day. Like I just heard a voice that was just, you know, you can't keep doing this, right? Like, and I was like, no, I can't. It was like, I kind of had this conversation with this. I, no, I can't. I don't, I don't know what to do. And, and this voice was just like, if you don't, stop what you're doing right now. You are going to die. Like it's literally giving me chills right now. Like this, you haven't had a horrible rock bottom, but when you do, it's going to kill you. Like, it's not going to be, this is it. You've got to figure it out. Like, it was you, a real warning. Yeah. And it was weird. It just kind of came out of nowhere. And I, I called action recovery. Um, I went there. I, it, it just, something had changed in me. Like I just, I wanted, I knew that nursing was the field that I wanted to go into. I knew I wanted to do good in school at this point. I'm failing, you know, um, I wanted to help somebody. I, I wanted to be able to do nursing and help somebody like me. Like I wanted to be able to put those two things together and, and do some good. And it, it just was weird. Like no rock bottom, just a Okay, it's time to change. And I did. I went, I I listened to the counselors at action. I did some real step work. You know, they say, you know, your step one, you need to to do a thorough step one. Like you need to get it out. I did. Um, it took me I was in I went through action for eleven months. Um, so I was going to school full time and, and doing rehab. Um, my family was very, very supportive of me. Um, I took those suggestions and I I ran with it. Um, vulnerability was key for me. Um, we, um, Brene Brown comes up a lot. Um, but her, we had a little thing in, in our rehab that we did the vulnerability talk with Brene Brown and, and it just spoke to me. And I was like, you know, my whole life I've been trying to pretend like I was okay, you know, but maybe it's okay if I'm not okay. And I just started sharing my story and opening, opening up about who I really am. And it was crazy, you guys. Like, I've had more doors open from being vulnerable than ever I had closed. You know, um, people. Authentic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just, I kept doing it. I went to school. Um, Why do you think that is? I don't Why know. do you think? Because it, it sort of doesn't initially make intuitive sense, right? Like, you know, if I 
put out a persona of competence and try to be only my best self and hide all the other parts, you would think that maybe people would receive us better. But isn't it true that when you're really open, you're really vulnerable, uh, like Casey said, you're your you're authentic self, all of a sudden people are drawn to us and mm-hmm. opportunities open. Why do you think that was the case in your, in your life? Um, relatability, connection, you know, um, people saw me as a real person with real struggles. And, um, I think people could relate to that. You know, I think that, um, they maybe felt safe. You know, I think a lot of us are just looking for that. Um, some understanding, safety, compassion. I I like the word connection that you used. I think we can't connect with the perfect person. Right. You know, we can't, we, you know, that may be nice to meet a person who presents as perfect, but the reality is you don't feel any closeness to them or connection. And that I think translates into all areas of life, including our professional life. Right. And when you go to a job interview, if you're authentic, they're going to be more drawn to you as opposed to the person who has all the perfect answers. And for me, when you say there was no real rock bottom per se, um, you know, most people think of a rock bottom as one precise incident or one moment. And it's your story and it's your life. But you've had almost an elongated rock bottom. And, and, and not to say that there wasn't moments of joy and happiness and authentic, you know, joy in those moments. But you went from being a young girl to losing your father to moving to this. I mean, it was... Well, what's the value of a rock bottom? Like, maybe we should talk about that for a second. Like, like we talk about rock bottoms, and you and I have had so many experiences on this show with guests, and they say something uh, out of bounds that just happened, and we're like, that's got to be the rock. Nope, there's another one, there's another one. So what is the value of a rock bottom, do you think? I think, you know... What does it do for a person? It's exactly what she said when there was a voice that said, hey, you keep doing this, you're going to die. You know what I mean? That It's the thing that makes you change. It's the thing that makes you go, I can't do this anymore. So I would say it's that moment of epiphany or insight. Clarity. Yeah, clarity, epiphany. In your case, it came as this auditory experience and this conversation you had. And isn't it wonderful that that sometimes can happen without a specific tragedy? Yes. Right? Like, Because people talk about the behavior of the rock bottom. But that's a lot less important than the experience. And I think the experience is that that insight, moment of clarity, where you just know it's now or never. It's got to be different. Well, so they say, you know, the fastest way to get yourself out of a hole is stop digging. But us as addicts, we can dig. We're great diggers. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, it's the truth. And so it's that moment where you go, okay, I'm stopping digging. Toss that shovel. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I don't want uh, I don't care what is on the other side, but I'm not going down this road anymore because I can't. And I know mine, and I, and we've talked about it a lot. And I remember just going, this is it. I'm not doing this again. Yeah. I cannot do this. I won't do this. And whatever it takes to not happen, I'm willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's what you did when you picked up the phone and called Action Recovery and did everything and opened up and was vulnerable and did that. And next week, you're taking your boards to become a lifelong dream registered nurse. I mean, how cool is that? And so, I mean, I look at you and... How long ago did that happen? When did you start the action, the, the recovery program that was 11 months? Um, so I started, was it 2018? It's about four years ago. 
No, so 2019. It would have been, so my clean date is September 13th, 2019. Lucky 13. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and the other thing is that, that I'm amazed by you is um, you're a warrior. <laughs> I mean, true, true warrior. I mean, all that you've been through, uh, and it's been a lot. You're here today standing, showing people that recovery is possible, chasing your dreams, and you're still fighting. That's the heart of a warrior, and you've got that. You, I mean, it's it's wonderful to see. And when you talk about registered nurse and you talk about all you've been through, your, your face smiles, and you get this glow. But throughout the story, I've seen you not smile. I've seen you cry. I've seen your body language shift. You know what I mean? And I can tell that you're truly in a wonderful place and you're doing good things. And I think the, the, the world better look out for the second half because <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Thank you. I mean, that I really am. I agree. I, I, you know, that means a lot. I, I really think you're going to do wonderful things and you're going to help so many. And that's what you wanted to do. Thank you. What would your advice be since, you know, it's been just a few years, you've been out, you've made tremendous changes in these few years. And, uh, you know, we're on the cusp of this huge accomplishment of being a registered nurse. But I would imagine that occasionally you, you whether it's emotionally or physically, you might kind of feel like, ah, oh, it'd be nice to escape. What's your advice to somebody who's in recovery? What do you do that helps you through those tough times? Oh, gosh. Um, so many things come to mind here, but I think the one that stands out the most is just one day at a time. One day at a time. Um, we hear that a lot. Why is that helpful to you? Um, it's just when you're in recovery, especially early recovery, it's so overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. And when you can break that down into just one day, even one moment at a time, it's it seems doable. You know, like if I can get, I can't promise you that I won't drink tomorrow, but if I can just get through today, I'm going to stay sober today, yeah. you know, um, and I applied that to, to school. Um, it was hard. It was uneasy, but one day at a time, um, get up and do the thing, you know, um, I apply that to my family, you know, um, so how is the family? Are you still married? Yes. Yep. Um, great family. Um, everything's really, really, you know, um, uh, with my youngest daughter, you know, luckily she didn't, she's not going to remember a whole lot of me being crazy, you know? Um, my husband and I, we have a, a really amazing relationship right now. Um, it's stronger than it's ever been. You know, we can communicate our feelings. You know, that was really hard for me to learn, um, is to communicate with him. You know, he should just read my mind, right? Yeah. But no, he doesn't. And I have, I communicate with him and we work through that. Um, my oldest kids, um, things are a lot better. We're working on it. I'm so grateful for them. I'm so grateful that we still have a relationship. I know. You know, with my dad, I didn't, I don't want anything to do with him. You know, um, I feel like I have a long ways to go with them. Um, there's some, some amends that I, I need to make with them still. Uh, I have a lot of guilt. I see some of my older kids struggling now and I, I have a lot of, you know, shame. Like maybe if I had done things differently, mm -hmm. that things would be different for them, you know, um, but it's awesome. It's awesome that I can be there for them and be clear minded. Um, my oldest daughter um, that I had when I was 16, you know, she's like, stop, stop. 
telling me your recovery stuff. It's fine. You know, and I just laugh, you know, and she, she's, she's been grateful, I think, to have her mom back. You know, she did say, she's like, I'm so proud of you for doing this for yourself. And, and that's a good feeling, you know? Yeah. So Dr. Matt, final thoughts. Well, I would say sort of paraphrasing a Buddhist saying, you know, the only time we exist is now. And so back to that one day at a time comment, that advice you gave to the listeners, I, I really like that because the reality is I was at my office earlier today, but I, that doesn't exist anymore. And later I'm going to go to a different office and that doesn't exist yet. The only time we exist is right now. And so now has a lot of power to, to make changes in our lives. So thank you for highlighting that uh, for our listeners and, and for, you know, telling your story and, um, being a great example of a Morgan Trojan. <laughs> I like that, that uh, people from Morgan uh, are tough. And I, I, I think that's great. So I appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing that. And, you know, it is one day at a time. It really is. For, for whether you're trying to get through school in a challenging program like nursing or you're struggling with uh, a child that has a disability in your family or you yourself are going through recovery, if you have that attitude one day at a time, you're going to make it. And I'm so grateful that I got to spend this moment with you and hear your story and the wonderful things you're doing and what wonderful things are going to happen. So thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank you for stopping by and listening to the podcast today. We appreciate every one of you who uh, invites us into your cars, your homes, your ears, wherever you get us. Uh, we do appreciate it. You're listening to Project Recovery. In case you forgot, Dr. Matt. It's a KSL podcast now. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.